In the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, good morning. I think two weeks ago we had a, a breakdown in YouTube broadcasting. And last week I'm told they had a breakdown in the microphone. So today I hope the speaker doesn't have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and uh, it is a pleasure and privilege to be speaking to you today. Uh, it is nice to see so many familiar faces, even with your masks on. And it feels almost normal, just like the old days. So after 18 months of COVID pandemic, I mean, most of us long to return to normality, wouldn't you? Yeah, many aspects of our lives have been disrupted or even turned upside down. Our family lives, our church life, our work life, I mean, they all have, they're all different. We have not been able to meet family members and loved ones um, and friends for more than a year. With my mother and sons outside Hong Kong, of my family, my own family, like many around the world, have been separated for months. I'm sure we all long for a day where we can all hug one another and see the faces of one another without the masks. More than 2,500 years ago, there was another group of people, the ancient Israelites, who were also longing to re return to normality. They had been uprooted from their homes and forced into exiles, into Babylon. The temple, which had long been a focal point of their faith and unity of the people, were basically completely um, raised to the ground and valuable moved to the temples in Babylon. It is difficult to exaggerate the disruption to the lives of the ancient Israelites that was brought about by this long period of exile. With the conquer of Babylon by the Persian Empire in 538 BC, a window of opportunity emerged for the ancient Israelites to return to their homeland, to Jerusalem. It was important for those returning to Jerusalem to be assured that they stood in the same line of the faith as their forefathers. After all, they had been away for several generations. Could they still rely on the same covenantal promises? Could they depend on God to aid and direct them the same way as God had guided the previous generations? Could they even claim to be the same people of Israel? Re-establish continuity with the, faith, with the faith of those preceded them was thus a critical part of their reclaiming identity as a people. If the book of Israel was just about returning to normality, that is, getting back into the temple, it would have ended in chapter 6. In spite of the setbacks and opposition all along the way, God's people had persevered. The house of God had been rebuilt and dedicated. It was not just completion of the building. It was also reconnecting with the past, reclaiming their identity and remembering God's salvation. No wonder in the last verse of chapter 6, we read that the Lord had filled them with joy. In truth, it would have been a great place to finish. Everyone lives heavily thereafter. But there is more. There's, there's always more to the story. Returning to the temple, returning to the church for worship, 
by itself is not the end goal. Returning to normalcy is not an end, is not a point in time, but a journey. Renewed worship needs to be accompanied by a renewed lifestyle. However, the people had lost touch with the gods, with how the gods called them to live. The very disobedience which had taken them into exile in the first place now threatened to undo them all over again. In their return to normality, they had also returned to their old sinful ways. So, this is why Ezra prays in chapter 9. Ezra's prayer is pure confession. It contains no request for forgiveness or any other petition. There is a full acknowledgement of guilt and recognition that they have placed themselves under the judgment of God. So we read in the climatic ending in verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra acknowledged that should God choose to destroy his people, it is justified. This may be said to constitute the highest form of worship, God being praised solely for who he is and does not depend on what the worship hopes to gain from him. The prayer provides a window into Ezra's heart. It was a deeply emotional outpouring of grief to the Lord, highlighting the people's unfaithfulness all too aware that he stands in solidarity with them. Just looking briefly over the structure of the whole prayer. So we have the repentance posture. We also then individual and communal lament, reflection of God's mercies and people's ingratitude, specific confession of the sins, and the statement of future intent, concluding confession. So at the start of the prayer, in verse 5, Ezra's adopted the stance of one in mourning for the dead. With a garment and cloak torn, he was on his knees and hands spread out to God. He prayed representatively on behalf of all the people. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to prepare his ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, God, now, O our God, how shall we say after this? For we have so forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. Ezra addressed to our God, throughout the confession. Indeed, God is the only hope for restoration they need. Even when, we, even when they stop living like his people, God did not stop loving them. God has shown kindness, covenant faithfulness to them. Ezra knows that this covenant God has not forsaken them, but that his grace is and already seen in events that brought about their return, give them a, a new life. But Ezra's confession 
is not merely full of laments and regrets. It also is a call to action. In verses 13 to 14, he says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, has punished us less than our iniquity deserved and has given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? This perhaps is a prayer that we can all reflect upon in the weeks and months ahead as we hopefully emerge out of the COVID restrictions, whenever that might be, whatever that new normal might look like. We should realize our reconnecting with family and loved ones, regathering as a church community, means nothing with our relationship with God be in the right place. In our eagerness to return to normality, we should not repeat the errors of the ancient Israelite and rush back to the old ways of life. COVID-19 has traveled compounded existing equalities in wealth, race, gender, education, and geographic locations. During the pandemic, the wealthy were not only to keep their well-paid jobs, but also benefit from storing, soaring stock market and rising house prices, widening the gap between the rich and the poor. We realize that working from home is a privilege not enjoyed by all in the society. Online classes are not feasible if the children do not have access to stable Wi-Fi or, pure, or appropriate hardware devices. Lower paid workers or in contrast, more likely have jobs that suspended activity, such as hospitality, catering, and tourism. They were also more likely to work in essential services such as nursing, teaching, cleaning, waste removal, and shop statistics. All of them have a higher likelihood of being exposed to COVID-19. The risk of contagion was further elevated by their living in more crowded homes, apartment buildings, and communal lifts and entrances on their being more reliant on public transport. The total number of people living in poverty around the world is estimated to have increased by at least 200 million last year. Distribution of much needed vaccine has also revealed much inequity. Some rich countries stockpile vaccines with not doses to vaccinate their people many times over. Some countries are now considering giving a third job as boosters, even as poorer countries cannot even secure vaccines for the first jabs for the most vulnerable population in their countries. The COVID-19 pandemic upended daily life so dramatically that there was a time when there seems to be a silver lining in COVID-19 that we were making a dent in climate crisis. Rush hour traffic disappeared, global travel ground to a hold, and the resulting economic turndown sent the energy-related pollution plummeting by almost 6% globally. This kind of decline in pollution is unprecedented in human history. It led many to wonder if COVID-19 would at least give us a little extra time over climate emergency. However, as economies 
recovered. Pollution also rebounded. The recent UN climate report reiterated the importance to take urgent actions on climate change once again. As we emerge from the restrictions, we may look around us and recognize our world is not as it should be. We look at ourselves, the people of God, and we see we are not what we should be. There is much healing to be done, and not only from illness, but from our world and society also needs healing. We need to see who God is and who we are. We are inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit to rebuild faithfully. We should be jolted from complacency by this disconnect of how things should be but how, and how things really are. Missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin reminds us, the church, that is you and I, lives in the midst of history as a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the reign of God. When we become aware that in reality God calls us to play our part in history, his story, the Holy Spirit opened our eyes. What do you see in your neighborhood, your workplace, that breaks your heart? What might pull your face down to the ground like Ezra did in prayer and confession? And when you rise to your feet, what part of God's great story might he be calling you to play? We are all aware many societal ills need rectifying, but what are the causes? Are there anyone to be held responsible? Is this action of individual persons or specific corporations? Or should the society as a whole take the responsibility for allowing such injustices and inequalities to flourish? The scripture tells us that it's both, it is both. The weight of guilt is strongest for those individuals who did wrong, but the whole society is also held responsible. We are all responsible. Some may think that some of the society issues or global problems are so huge or in intractable that whatever we do will not move the needle. Some might think that we are already too late in, some, in solving some of the problems of the world. Do not lose hope, but we need perseverance and courage to stay the course. By the time William Wilberforce began to campaign to abolish the slave trade in the 18th century, the Atlantic Triangular slave trade was not only accepted by the, in the British world, was actually a source of enormous wealth for many. The English merchants carried cash to the coast of Af West Africa where they bought or captured slaves, who were then sold in the Americas where they labored in large plantations, produced sugar and other crops that were shipped, shipped to the English ports of London, Bristol, and Liverpool. Cash, crops, and people, the three legs of Atlantic economy that made the British Empire exceedingly rich. Thus, Wilberforce was facing an uphill battle with strong opposition from vested, entrenched vested interests. Wilberforce was horrified by a depraved and unchristian trade. He sensed that this was a call from God. This commitment to abolish slavery was Wilberforce's life pursuit 
It would take 20 years before England banned trading in slaves, and, and another 26 years before slavery was banned altogether. Three days after the abolition of slavery bill was passed in the parliament, Wilberforce died. Yet the work that Wilberforce started 200 years ago still is not done yet. Human, traf tra <coughs> human trafficking and modern-day slavery still persist in many parts of the world. There are also other situations that warrants our attention today. Ten years ago, long before COVID, 260,000 people died in the two 2011 Somalia famine, half of them children. The world said never again. But today, more than 41 million people are one step away from starvation. A deadly mix of climate, climate change, conflicts, and economic fallout from COVID-19 is driving ever-worsening hunger for millions of children and their families. In some hunger spots, Children are literally living under famine conditions. Boys and girls are not just starving, but being starved to death. Closer to Hong Kong, do you realize there are about 300,000 people living in subdivided flats or cage homes? Have you noticed the number of homeless is increasing around us? Sorry. <laughs> yes, none of us call to tackle world-scale problems like stopping human traffic or ending hunger, but we can all do our part in making our society a better place. In our daily decisions, do we just consider our own personal interests, or do we consider the common interests of the societies at large? What is good for your, our neighbor and community would ultimately be good for us because it means that we have society that functions better. When community work better, everybody benefits. Our Christian faith and values should be the backbone of our daily life. In the sixth century, Pope Gregory the Great released a list of seven deadly sins. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wealth, um, wrath, envy, and pride to help keep Christians on the right path with, to God. In 1925, an Anglican priest, Frederick Lewis Donaldson, first uttered what he referred to as the seven deadly social sins. Mahatma Gandhi renamed them as the seven social sins and popularized the list. Gandhi's intention was promoting what was focused on the conduct individuals within a society. He warned that these seven social sins give example where personal interests winning over the common good. If we destroy the common good in order to pursue our personal interests, it will ultimately come back to hurt us. So what are these seven social sins? So wealth without work. Do you want to make money without working or putting in any efforts? Are you going to cheat or still to obtain wealth. Two, pleasure without conscience. Do you covet something that does not rightly belong to you? 
would you pursue pleasure that causes harm to others? Three, knowledge without character. It does not matter how smart you are or how good you are in your job. Your career will not last long if you don't have moral integrity. You must do the right thing. Be a person of character and integrity. Be someone who can be trusted. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Four, commerce without morality. All business strive to make money. But would you cut corners or circumvent regulation in order to make more money? Profit at any cost is not good for anyone. Ultimately, someone is paying the price. You will eventually hurt the society, which in turn is bad for business. Science without humanity. Science, technology, innovation are a great thing. But what purpose do they serve? Do they, are they designed with a purpose to serve and benefit main hum humanity? Religion without sacrifice. How many people talk the talk of their spiritual values, but do not walk the walk? Love your labor as yourself, which involves sacrifice. Sometimes we do not exercise all the freedom that we can have in order to love our neighbor. Do not cause another person to stumble. We must be able to behave, we must be able to behave in a way that we can actually reach our neighbors. Seven, politics without principle. Politics without truth and values generates chaos. Not all of us are professional politicians, but we all have been part of office politics. Are we willing to lie or manipulate others in order to win or get ahead? To this list, somebody added an eighth, more modern social sins, rights, without responsibilities, rights without responsibilities. We talk about rights a lot these days. There's a right to privacy, a right to free speech, a right to practice one's freedom, etc. New rights are being proclaimed as in seemingly increasing pace every day. But this heightened focus on rights can draw us away from the heart of the gospel. We essentially become hardened with a way, array of rights right, that rather than allowing us to do what we should, it isolates ourselves, we, us, from our neighbors who may also claim rights that's different from ours. A preoccupation with our self-interested rights can make us self-centered and lose sight of our responsibility towards our neighbors. As Christians, we do have rights. We have the right to forgive. We have the right to pray, talk, and listen to God. And we have the right to be the beloved children of God. But with these rights, there also comes responsibilities. Our thinking must shift. What do I have the right to do? To what has God called me to do in this world? God calls us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with Him. But so often we act unfairly, love judgment, and walk proudly away from our God. Ezra confesses the disobedience of his people. He did not commit such sin himself, yet he still repents, 
realizing his complicity as part of a disobedient community. Whether we are guilty on an individual or communal level, how can we practically play our role within God's story in our everyday life? Like Ezra, one way we can do this and start this journey is prayer. We might repent of our willing participation in broken system of injustice and wear our daily habits, prioritize our convenience over other people's welfare. Or we may intercede over unjust situations where individuals' actions threaten justice and peace. How can we all work together to make these children a nicer and safer place, not only for ourselves, our neighbors, but also for our children. As we kneel in prayer, may we find the wisdom and courage to stand as agents of God's justice, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with Him. So in the next few minutes, I, yeah, I urge all of you to pray within your places or come up to the front to pray what has God revealed to you over the past 18 months and what has God called you to do? Thank you.